As an 18-year-old, he stood before a judge and was being sentenced to jail. He's now considered one of America's all-time great trial lawyers and one of the great trial lawyers of our time. He uses mind maps and not notes or outlines to question witnesses. He teaches. He'll be teaching at the Trial Lawyers University. He'll be teaching at the Spence Method at Thunderhead Ranch. And not only will be he teaching at the Spence Method, but he is actually Jerry Spence's lawyer. In 2009, he took part in a defamation trial that resulted in a nine-figure verdict. And his cross-examination of the main participant, a billionaire businessman, is the stuff of legends. I'm Neil Rockheim. This is the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. And my guest is none other than Rex Paris. Rex, welcome to the show. So Rex, tell me a little bit about how you began as a lawyer. Well, so let's start from the very beginning, if we can. I don't want to start when atoms collided, but take us to the point where uh, how you got to, to be in the position to be the lawyer that you are today. You know, you know why you can't trust atoms? No, why? They make up everything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a good one. I'm going to remember that. Uh, it, it's, uh, I read it in, in jokes that grandfathers should bore their grandchildren with. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. Uh, you know, I guess I, I be, started becoming a lawyer when I was a busboy uh, working with my mother at a restaurant, local restaurant. Uh, I dropped out of high school. And, but she was always pointing out who the players were in town. You know who the who the people were with power, and then I found myself in the regrettable situation of I think I had about eight traffic tickets I didn't think I really needed to appear on. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and I you know I'm standing in front of a judge who sends me to jail. Uh, and How old were you? Eighteen, and I, you know I never felt such mind numbing terror in my life. You know, where you literally can't control your knees from shaking. And, you know, it's a small town back then. It's, it's not so small now. But uh, my mother knew the judge and she went to his house and talked him out of it later. But, you know, I went through the, so I didn't actually have to go through that experience. I did volunteer community service for six months instead. But, uh, but at that moment, I decided that, you know, I, I wanted to be on this side of that bar, not that side, you know, it, it, uh, it, it really, uh, you know, I think power means in many respects to me protection, you know, uh, safety. Uh, and so that, that was probably the moment that things turned around. And so I went to community college and, uh, you know, it was a long, long road, but eventually I got a law degree. Uh, but had that not happened, I don't think I would. Interesting. Did you always want to be a, what we call a, a civil lawyer? And when we say civil, we don't mean, um, there are really two types of, I guess, just overarching fields of trial lawyers, right? There's uh, 
mm. criminal lawyers like what I do. And then there are civil lawyers that end up suing um, on behalf or bringing cases on behalf of individuals or groups against corporations, entities, other people. Did you always want to be on that side of the, of the, the, the legal field? No, I actually wanted to be a criminal lawyer uh, until I actually did it. And, you know, I did it for a while and I thought it just too painful. You know, I, mean, I don't know how to represent somebody without forming a very close attachment with them. You know, I care about them. I worry about them. Right? And, you know, I, I just couldn't bear after a while people that I, that I loved going off into a dungeon. And, you know, they're, they're, make no mistake, those are dungeons. They, uh, they're clean for the most part, but they're dungeons. And uh, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't give it a you're not going to get any five star diamond awards, you know, for being clean in the local lockup or yeah. I mean, think about it in our most in the what some consider to be the crown jewel of, you know, the United States, which is New York City. If you're incarcerated in a federal case or waiting for trial, you're in the you're in the, um, uh, was it the Manhattan Correctional Center, right? The MCC, which uh, a judge recently in the sentencing described as, uh, I think he said it was barbaric or third world. So- I think that's accurate for a lot of jails, most jails. Uh, it was too painful, that's interesting. I didn't know that about you. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, when I, I, my first job was as an insurance defense lawyer, and I knew I wasn't going to stay there long. And uh, so I always, the first question I'd always ask every plaintiff was, how'd you find your lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, okay, I'll bite. That seems like a joke that you might tell one of your grandkids too. So how did you find your lawyer? So, but you asked and how did they answer you? Well, it would depend on the person, but, you know, ultimately what I was doing was market research. You know, one was name ID was very important and uh, uh, referrals, you know, having having a lot of community contacts. Uh, but, you know, and, and, you know, mostly in most families, the, the wife will pick the lawyer uh, on a personal injury case. If it's a business issue, that may not be the case, but certainly uh, with personal injury, that is. And so, you know, very early, 30 years ago, you know, we were defining how to how to target the market. So you started off in the insurance defense. You started off as a criminal defense lawyer. Then you ventured into insurance defense. Yeah, it was a firm that did both. Actually, they, they were primarily yeah. insurance defense, but they let me do criminal defense, you know, because my, my goal ultimately was to be a trial lawyer and they were uh, they were cooperating with that. Did you know what that meant then? What when you were when you were saying to yourself that you wanted to be a trial lawyer? Like as you look back at that younger version of Rex Paris, do did you know then what being a trial lawyer meant? I think it took me about a year to realize that you know I mean this was this was an insurance defense firm, and maybe three of them had ever had a trial. You know, but what it seemed to be is is uh, the biggest challenge most of them faced were staying out of staying out of the courtroom. <laughs> sure, it's funny because it then took me thirty years to realize, or twenty years to find out why that's the case. Tell me, 
What'd you figure out? Well, I mean, a, a courtroom is an incredibly threatening environment. Uh, and it's threatening for a lot of genetic reasons. You know, it's in our DNA. Uh, and, you know, I can give you the, the background of that is what the research tells us is that, you know, as we evolved in the tribes, the, uh, we were totally dependent on the tribe for survival. If you got banished, you died. You know, you either froze to death, the animals ate you, the tribe a mile away killed you. You could not survive without the tribe. And most tribes were composed of about 12 families, uh, 12 nuclear, if you were to call them that, although there were no nuclear families, everybody kind of lived together. The, uh, uh, and, and it was controlled by the chief. You know, all the resources were controlled by the chief. So what would happen if you did something that, that caused enough uh, dissension within the tribe, you got banished. And that usually required you to have, be in a weaker position, which comes from public humiliation. You know, the, one, the person who humiliates themselves enough, nobody listens to. He has no influence. You know, uh, that's the person that gets banished. So what do we have in a, in a courtroom situation? You know, you got 12 people over here. You got the chief up there on the bench. And one of you are going to be banished. Make no mistake about it. That's the nature of the, of the contest. The, uh, and so that's why even to this day, I'll go into, into trials and the opposing counsel will be, you know, the, the senior partner of a white shoe firm, you know, with 500 lawyers, a thousand lawyers. And when he starts, he's shaking. Uh, it's subtle, but it's there. The voice is a little different than it normally is, but he's terrified. Uh, I see that over and over again. And I've seen them, you know, stand like this as they, they talk to the jury in opening and closing, you know, which is a very protective feeling. And they have no idea why. And, you know, what I, what I observed very early is that most of the guys with reputations in the firms were, you know, they, they suffered from severe imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and now I know why, and I know, and I know how to fix it. And, you know, you first have to let people know why they're so afraid, and and uh, that it's, you know, you'd have to be mentally challenged not to be terrified, given how we evolved in in tribes, and in, in that that setting, uh, and then you have to learn how to deal with it. And how to deal with it is, has nothing to do with your character. It has nothing to do with your courage. It's just technique. You know, it's uh, anybody can learn it. I, I think the, the thing I'm proudest about, it's not my verdicts, but the verdicts of my uh, associates and my kids. Interesting. Is because let me, every, let me, let me follow up on that for a second. I'm very curious about why should as we're listening, you clearly know a lot about how the, the mind and body and how we react to different situations. How did a kid who found himself standing in front of a judge being, you know, essentially ushered off to jail at 18, um, how did you end up in the position where, you, as a lawyer, where you learned this? What's your... I don't say it's a secret, but how did you learn it? 
Well, you know, you study. I, I get up at four o'clock even to this day, and what I study is cognitive science. Uh, the reason I did that, though, is, is you know, I, when I, it goes back to when I was in utero. You know? <laughs> when I was in utero, apparently I had a stroke, and I developed an arachnoid cyst, which caused pressure on my, on my uh, left amygdala. So I, I grew up with, on the extremes of emotions. You know, if I was sad, I was in utter agony. If I, if I was enraged, if I was angry, I was enraged. You know, and so it makes it very difficult to, to navigate the world when you are constantly bouncing back and forth to extremes. But I never learned that. I never knew that until about five years ago when they removed it. And it was like, damn, hmm. this is what normies feel. <laughs> <laughs> so you were... But, but, you know, let me finish with it, and then we'll talk about that if you want. Yeah, please, please. So in order for me to survive, and especially as a trial lawyer, to survive, you know, I mean, you, you know what happens in courtrooms and what judges will do to you. And survival required me to find out how to develop the techniques to be able to deal with this. I didn't know what I was dealing with. I just knew I was different, you know. Uh, and uh, in order to learn those techniques, I was really compelled to study. Mm -hmm. And as soon as... Yeah, where have your studies taken you? I know you've had a... I know people read about like cross-examination and they read about openings and voir dire, but I, from what I understand, your studies have been really different. They've been more, I'll say, elemental than the end product of how to do voir dire or how to communicate. They really have been more at, yeah. the, at yeah. the element level. That's true. One of the things, you know, I'm... I'm uh... I'm almost 70 years old now. And what I learned over those years was if you want to solve a problem, you really have to break it down into as granular uh, a spectrum as you can, and then build back up. You know? uh, and that's what I attempted to do is, you know, but it's this gesture it took me six months to learn that. So you can't see it, you know? Uh, and for me to be able to just use it with, at the appropriate time. Uh, Tell me what you mean. So you just did a gesture. What do you mean it took you six months to use it and, but not see it? I'll be talking to you and, and I'll do this, right? Uh, that's signaling to you we're affiliated. We're on the same team. You know, we're in agreement with this, right? It's very elementary uh, in, you know, in the way our brain uh, um, you know, uh, decodes it, and uh, but it's incredibly powerful. In fact, it made me a hundred million dollars one day. <laughs> that made you okay. I I have to ask, how did that make or contribute to you making a hundred million dollars in a day? Well, not in a day, but uh, in a case. I was in this case. It was a huge class action, and uh, but I also represented the court reporter's husband. And, you know, I didn't think anything of it. And, uh, it, you know, because Lancaster is in L.A. County, but it's we're off onto ourselves, you know, where there's this mountain range that separates us. 
it's a pretty closed community in that regard. And so it's not unusual for that to happen for me. But the judge was concerned about it and came out and offered to recuse himself over it. Uh, this was a judge that was ruling almost every day in our way, in our direction. Yeah. Uh, and he offered him that. But right before, right before, I'd been, I was talking to opposing counsel and, you know, I was doing my routines with him. And he goes, ah, that's okay, judge. <laughs> Interesting. I think if we had gotten a different judge, it, it might have been a different result. And you yeah. ended up getting a verdict or a, or a, a settlement of a, of $100 million. There was two cases, actually, and the, the combined was over $300 million. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they settled it during the Boyd Dyer. Uh, but, you know, I, I mean, that's an example of it. This is powerful stuff. So we, so we do things like this every day, probably without necessarily thinking of the impact that it has on the, the listener. Right? That's, that's accurate. Um, are there other things that you have, and I'm sure there are, we probably can't begin to scratch the surface, but. Yeah, but understand it's, it's not impact on the listener. It's, we have visual cues to each other so we can identify foes and friends. You know? And those visual cues will always override the, the, uh, the verbal, what we say. Can you give me an, can you give me an example of a of a visual of a visual cue? Okay, let's do it. I think this is probably the most profound one. You want to get rid of racism? Put everybody in the same uniform. Look <laughs> <laughs> okay. you know what happens in sports teams. You know, within the team, racism is really just a minor issue. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what all of that, most of all of that stems from is we grew up in a very hostile, hostile environment on the Serengeti, you know? I mean, that's where we evolved. And every day was a struggle just to survive. The, uh, you know, I, I actually spent a couple, I spent 10 days on the Serengeti and it's like a banquet for the predators. That's <laughs> how I described it, you know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, uh, when, and when you recognize that, you know, then you start realizing why visuals are important. You know, you need to know immediately, immediately, who's with you and who's not. Uh, and so as we evolve, we have all these different techniques for doing so. Uh, Interesting. And once you, and you're never, and I'm never going to master them. The more I learn about them, the more I understand them, the more I can see things develop, and the more I can effectuate a, uh, a course correction as they develop. Now, I know you work with your, 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 you have associates in your firm, and I believe you work with your sons. Is that right? Two sons, yeah. And a moment ago, you were telling us how the among the results or the the verdicts that you've been able to accomplish, the ones that you are the most proud of, or among the ones you're the most proud of, 
are the ones that your associates and your your sons have been able to attain. Tell me, tell me about that. Well, everyone that we've trained in the firm, they're hitting seven-figure verdicts within the first one, two, or three cases. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's some cases you just can't get a seven-figure verdict on, but not very many. No, but you've got nine, you probably have gotten nine figure verdicts on those cases. So no, no, not, not that much, but you know, the, it, it's not a trick. It's just recognizing what's valuable, what's important to people, you know? Uh, and it's also the, the biggest, the biggest obstacle to trial lawyers is themselves, you know? I mean, it, it, we go in there and we, we pretend to be something we're clearly not. Uh, we spend all of our cognitive energy into the, the facade we're attempting to display to the world. And about this much on the case. You know? <laughs> <laughs> now, and, that's and so once, you, once you're able to know exactly when, when you're afraid and why you're afraid and and how to turn that into a valuable thing. You're so far ahead of everybody else at just that point, you know? Then when you start understanding just essentially now, they weren't, they weren't uh, uh, elementary, you know, five years ago, but now are becoming elementary principles. It, uh, it, it's hard not to be good. You know? what, what some of the things that you're talking about Rex, um, sound very similar to things that um, the sentiments that I have heard Jerry Spence share with other lawyers. Um, what's your relationship to, to Jerry Spence, or at least what can you tell us some history about you and him that you're comfortable sharing? Because I obviously I know that you and he are were were close. I represent um, him. <laughs> yeah. I, Jerry, I met Jerry in 1995 when I went to the Thunderhead Ranch when he was, that was the second year of the Jerry Spence Trial Lawyers College. Now, and so what, it's been a 25 year relationship now. Uh, the, uh, he's one of the, he's going to go down in history as one of the, the all time great lawyers. On no question. Of no question. You know, he's right up there with uh, with uh, Clarence Darrow for the 20th century. Uh, the you know he had remarkable insights, and he wasn't a, and he and he wanted to share them, and he wanted to teach lawyers, and he and he put you know I think he put eight million dollars in into changing the ranch, and from a, it was a cattle ranch into a place to teach lawyers. Uh, and gave it to to them. Uh, you know, he's he's got a heart as big as his ass, and it's a big ass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, well, teaching was obviously very important to him, and right. it seems and it seems very important to you. Why is teaching so important to you? Well, I just remember how desperate I was when I got there, and and how how much of a fraud I thought I was, you know? And then you're trying to act like something you're not. So of course you feel like a fraud, you know? But I left that place that summer 
with a clear understanding that these are skills I can learn. Yeah. And, you know, he, he brought a lot of people together to teach us. You know, there was, there was Paul Rivera from, from Seattle, or the Washington area. Uh, Racehorse Haynes is now deceased, but, you know, he was one of America's greatest uh, uh, criminal lawyers. He was there. And, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, and it was a, an experiment in trying to discover what are the actual skills that, that are being utilized. And it took a long time. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, as most organizations do, it veered off in the wrong direction. But I think, you know, because of the litigation and all, it's now coming back. And, you know, we're putting on a summer program in August that I have no doubt that anybody who attends that will come out a far better trial lawyer, far better. I mean, exponentially better. Because it is a, a set of discrete skill sets that you have to have to learn and practice and how well you practice them will determine how well you use them in the courtroom. So let me, what case, I know you've had some, some uh, I'll just, they're monster cases. I mean, some of the results that you've been able to attain on behalf of your clients are extraordinary results. I'm always disappointed. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tell me, tell me about some of the, the results. And then I do want to ask why you're disappointed. I mean, I know you're made, I, I, I don't get the sense that you're kidding, but it seems like you, you, you probably mean that, that you get a result and it's maybe the biggest verdict in the history of a particular area. And yet you still are disappointed with the, the verdict in some way. So tie those two together. What I think what we do is so abstract, you know, I mean, how do you value a personal injury case? You know, there, there is no measuring device. Uh, it, and so I come up with a, with a view of the case that I believe that I firmly believe, right? And rarely does the jury give me that amount. Okay. And always less. So uh, let, let's use the, I, I know in 2009, you had what was the highest jury verdict? Was it in the United States or it was the largest uh, verdict in a defamation and intentional affliction of emotional distress case? Is that right? I think it was the largest verdict in, in the country at that time. Um, that tell year. me about the case. Well, there, there was a, uh, there were four employees. We represented two of them, but the lawyers for the other, uh, you know, uh, plaintiffs, or actually they were defendants, uh, had never tried a case before. <laughs> and and, and I, I, had, I had spent very little time on the case before the trial. And, and so like, you know, we're having this breakfast before first first morning with the judge and uh i'm asking for their jury instructions and they said what <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> so we're getting ready to go into a trial and there's no motions in limit i mean we have them but they don't no motions in limine, no jury instructions and really no understanding of what they were doing so i i i just said look you guys just shut the up in that courtroom and I'll get you a lot of money. <laughs> and for the most part, that's what they did. I mean, they had very little involvement. So who did you represent? I represented uh, this guy's business manager and his, 
and one of the other lower level clerks in the office. And, you know, he had significant issues and he, he accused them of stealing, started out at, you know, 100 million and ended up 400 million, he was accusing them of stealing. Uh, and whenever he, you know, he, was, he had real paranoid reactions to things. And, uh, you know, he added, started adding people to the list. And, but the one closest to him was the business manager who I represented. And he just didn't seem to be able to, she finally had enough and said, I'm done. And that's when he started filing lawsuits. And he had about 20 some firms he went through in, in the LA area, uh, suing these people. And they were, you know, they were essentially defenseless. And somebody came to us and said, you know, I'm gonna defend these, these two women uh, and ask for our help. And, you know, I looked at it and so we file a cross complaint and, uh, and then the others piled on. And what they would do is whatever we filed, they would copy and file. <laughs> I mean, they were literally right on law school. <laughs> How long was the trial? It lasted 10 days, six days. I mean, it, I forget, it wasn't, it wasn't really a long trial. Uh, and, uh, but it had a lot of, it was a fun trial. Well, what eventually happened is what we did is we struck his answer because he refused to come to Lancaster for his deposition. Yeah, he just wasn't the, the air, you know, it wasn't arrogance. It was, I don't know what you call it, you know, but, but he looked at the world that he had to be on the top of it, that people had to be subservient to him because he, you know, it made so much money. And, uh, and he was very flamboyant and extremely charming when he wanted to be. Uh, uh, and, uh, but that's ultimately what happened is we got his answers. It was a ordeal to do it. And uh, then he attacked the judge, you know, like he had pickets outside the courtroom every, every day. He hired Actors Guild, you know. Now, he, he was clearly doing this to impact the jury, but, you know, Actors Guild go to lunch at noon, just like the jury did. <laughs> <laughs> so, so did you did you end up examining? Did you call him as an adverse witness? Well, he was the plaintiff in the case, right? So you yeah, had to. Uh, and uh, he wasn't. You know, I didn't expect him to come, but he was. He had the courtroom filled with people. You know, lawyers. I mean, expensive lawyers. I mean, you know, from multiple firms, and they were texting him throughout the. You know, we can say who this person is, right? Well, you know, I'm reluctant to because, you know, you thought, yeah, he's a public figure and all that, but do I really know? Right. Well, they, they, <laughs> they can look up the case, right? Yeah. They can look up the case. So right. let me ask you, let me ask you this. Did, did you end up? Let me tell you how he showed up, though, because they're quite a yeah, yeah, I'm dying to hear it. So, you know, I got somebody on the stand and all of a sudden the doors open, right? And any walks. <laughs> I mean, it's quite an entry. And he sits down because he just couldn't bear not being the center of the show and all this, you know? And uh, so 
I immediately approached and asked the judge if I, you know, can I call him out of order? And and she said, because uh, she was, you know, he was really going after her. And she said, uh, not until I get security in here. <laughs> and I said, you know, because I'm the mayor, I, I had a I had a sheriff's deputy in the courtroom when he was playing clothes, but you know, uh, I said we got security, and she said no, that's not enough. <laughs> Later, I found out that they had major crimes as the bailiffs. <laughs> you know, major crimes in LA County. Wow, they're a different breed. <laughs> you just don't want to mess with them. <laughs> wow. The uh, uh, but so we waited, and finally, I put them on. I got to tell you, he was kicking my ass, kicking my ass. He was that charming, you know, he was that glib. And I'm thinking, oh no, oh, oh, how, do I, how am I gonna live this down? <laughs> I mean, that's like a clash of titans because you're, I mean, look, you're considered one of the great trial lawyers in the United States, in, in my opinion. Thank you. And here you're cross-examining or examining as an adverse witness um, this uh, megalomaniac who has the ability to sit in front of a jury for the few moments he's there and to charm them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I appreciate your honesty in telling us that he, you felt like you were, this is an important moment though for people that are listening because every great trial lawyer has been there Anybody who sits there and tells you that they've, that they've dominated every witness is completely full of shit. We've all had moments where we're sitting there and thinking, I'm losing this battle, right? Yeah, yeah. and you know, I, I never approach a witness not thinking I could lose them, you know? I mean, you, you, the reason I was so driven to learn this stuff is because of the, the witnesses that have humiliated me in the past, you know? Sure. I mean, it's so what happened as you're in the middle of examining? Well, so he, but then I, you know, I'm always looking for the little crack, you know, right? The little, and and I forget what he said, but he said something, and I said, "You are on a mission to destroy their lives, aren't you?" And for some reason, he goes, "I am on a crusade." <laughs> <laughs> What happened when he did that? Well, it was over then. <laughs> now, what did you do? Paint, I want you to, 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 let's do more than just tell me about that, that what he did. What did the jury do? What did you think as that happened? And what was, what did you, what was your reaction at that moment? Well, you know, my reaction at that moment was how much further do I go? How much could I possibly, how much better could it be? You know? Uh, because now he's revealed himself. He is, he is, and, he, and he truly was on a crusade. Uh, and, but, you know, I always tend to, if I have one failing, it's not knowing when to quit, you know? Uh, and I probably could have quit then. Uh, but, you know, I didn't, you know? I, I, you know, I went into more of the specifics of how his crusade was going on. And it, but I think what got him there was, was something very insignificant. When, when I said, you know, when, when you, because somebody whispered in my ear, you know, uh, what was going on outside. I said, when you got here today, you drove up into the front of the courthouse, right? He said, yes. And I go, you, and you had a driver? Yes. 
and you parked right in front of the door. You know, it's the LA Superior Court, and it's a big building. He goes, yes, and I go, and the, the curve is red, isn't it? Yes, and your car is still there waiting for you. Isn't that true? Yes, and then, and it's because you don't think the laws really do apply to you, do you? Even the parking laws don't apply to you. <laughs> a great question. And, and, and the way the, the jury was reacting to that is, I think, what caused his anxiety level to get to the point that when that other question came, he exploded. It's, it's not an answerable question. I mean, you put such a great question to him on such a, on a thing that the jury, regular people who are deciding this case could truly relate to, which is... Yeah. You know, they get they walk outside and their car's towed or they got a boot on it or they get in a parking ticket, right? And this guy pulls up like you know, he doesn't care. Right. He doesn't care. Uh you know, it it's a small thing, it probably meant nothing. Uh, you know, it's it's how rich people act. You know, it's why rich people drive in the uh in the uh diamond lane, you know. Is, is that your, is that your proudest? Now, I know I, I often try to talk to, when I talk to juries and clients to, to prepare them for the fact that there aren't many Perry Mason gotcha moments. There's no Matlock where we get to ask a, you know, 30, you know, two minute, three minute question. And the guy in the back of the courtroom says, okay, I did it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I can't Have remember. you had some of those moments? Because that, that's, that's like one of those moments. That's like a, the moment you just described with that, um, with that witness. That is like one of those, um, you know, few good men type moments where the witness just... You, you, yeah, you, you don't get too many dramatic moments like that. But, you know, I, I, uh, anymore, it, it's not that unusual. Yeah, I mean... Do you use focus pivotal, groups to help you get there? Pivotal pivotal question and answer that changed the case that's not that unusual so uh, do you use focus groups how do you get how do you prepare yourself rex to get to that point where you can read the witness and thrust and parry with them you're it, it sounds to me the way you're describing it almost like a rope adult like you were really wearing the guy out now that may not have been what your intention was in the beginning but you were really sort of wearing him out and then he revealed himself which you know, revealed all of the previous hours that you'd probably question him to be, to be BS. Ask that again. How do you get there? See, when, when, when you're, the way you describe it, you describe as you're examining him, you're questioning him and he's sort of, um, you thought that he was kicking your ass or you felt that way or he was. He was, make no mistake. <laughs> but you knew it was bullshit. I mean, yes, he was in the theater of the moment in the courtroom, but in terms of who was more, who was being more genuine, he, you knew he was just putting on a front. He was just doing his charming act and hope that he'd get away with it for those few hours, right? Yeah, I, I, although I also think that that's who he was. You know, he, he, there, was no, there was no longer any depth to him. You know, and that came out in other witnesses that he, uh, you know, it's all, it was all flamboyant show. Uh, the, uh, you know, this is a, a man with no friends, none. 
uh, no deep relationships. A uh, lot of hookers were going in and out of the place, and you know the, it, but that's what you would expect with somebody who can't form bonds with people. Uh, the uh, I, I think the the thing that I do differently is I walk towards the fear. Whenever I start feeling afraid about something happening, or what the witness is saying, or or what he just said, or where he's going, I will walk towards it. You know, because I know it's under the rocks of fear that that the gold is. You know, uh, and. Uh, if I don't have those moments, I, I'm unable to really knock it out of the park. So I, I, I kind of, um, I'm looking for them. I'm trying to- Are you looking them. for them ahead of time or are you looking for them in the middle of the court during the, the examination and during the trial? The, the level of preparation we go into is extreme. You know, I mean, I've gone through the deposition four or five times. I've role played it with people in the office or my wife. Uh, the, uh, you know, in the early years, my wife used to say, when I die, I want you to put on my headstone. She was the doctor because I was always coming into the kitchen or the living room and say, you be the doctor. And then I would start the, you know, the leading questions and the cross-examination. And, you know, my wife is the, is quite honestly and sincerely, the brightest person I've ever met. Uh, Good compliment. She, she's incredibly bright, and she would mess with me and frustrate me. And yeah, you know, I mean, she would stay within the rules of the game, but it was never easy. And so, by the time I got into the courtroom with these these guys, it was so much easier. Do you do that with? That. So that's like that's is that's really not what you would call a focus group. That's more like a mock trial. Is I mean, I know it's sort of. It's, it's very, you know, off the cuff and, you know, but it's constant, it's constant. It, and it's usually, if there's like, I'll reach a point, there's something I know I'm going to want to do and I'll do that. And I'll do that over and over and over again with different people until it's there. And it's got to be done. You got to get it down to the point that a 10 year old can understand it. You know, a 10 year old can follow it. You got to keep it very simple. You got to simplify it. Uh, and uh, I do do focus groups, but you know I, I've learned not to listen to focus groups. Uh, what I'm what I'm looking for with focus groups is one it forces me to get ready you know, before the trial, and I'm looking for other uh, things I didn't see, issues I didn't see, or sticking points that you know I've seen cases fall apart over the seating diagram because you didn't do a seating diagram, you know. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, one time there, there was a case I had where it occurred in a restaurant, you know, it was an assault. And, you know, we go through the whole trial, but they, the, they thought the two witnesses, the eyewitnesses, had to be lying because that's not how people sit in a restaurant. But it was, one, it was those Denny's tables that go like this, you know, the big ones that... So, you could see that if they were trying to reconstruct it from the words, they would think that they were lying over a very insignificant point. If we just diagrammed it, and you know that was a very early in my career that happened, and I uh, I learned then, you know, if you don't have a visual to aid in the testimony, don't even talk about it. 
it, not only will it not be remembered, if it is remembered, it will be what hurts you, you know? It'll be because of the incongruence that, that people perceive. Uh, so we're, we're very big on the visuals. And that's another thing I, I use focus groups for is to see how the visuals are going. You know, now, I, I know you're going to be, I, I want to ask you a couple other questions and then I want to specifically get to, a, a, a dying to hear a couple of moments in, in the courtroom. Um, but I know because you're so into teaching, I know that you're going to be teaching, um, I think, six hours of a presentation at the Trialers University uh, in, I think it's in October um, in, in, um, in Las Vegas. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Actually. What are you going to be teaching? Well, you know, they always want that. They always want a title. And, you know, I, I, I teach what I feel like teaching at the moment. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm constantly like, okay, so I, I just did one uh, down in L.A. And it, it was supposed to be on for two hours. And, but I'm changing the PowerPoint up to the minute I go on, you know. Uh, it's a lot has to do with how I'm feeling, what's in the room, you know, the, the, what, the, what I perceived that they've already learned that day. Uh, but what I teach is I teach persuasion skills. You know, that's what I teach. I teach what is it you, we have to know in a very granular level to make us better at what we do. And that includes everything, you know, it includes like one of the biggest things lawyers have to learn is quit measuring yourself against other lawyers. Quit being jealous of other lawyers. You know, every time I get into that jealous mode where I get that, you know, that he must know the judge. You know? <laughs> that, that moment that we've all had, I know that I've stopped learning. I've stopped improving. There's, there's something about that, that what occurs when you do that. And it was probably just cognitive energy is being misdirected, you know. But uh, now when I have a colleague or, or somebody I know get a good verdict, and people I don't even know because I'm the mayor, I, we send out these prop proclamations, you know, uh, congratulating them. The, I'll send them a plant, an email, you know, I celebrate their success. But not for them, for me. You know, I don't want that feeling because it's so disruptive. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, I forget what question I was asking. No, you're, you, there's no question. You're telling, you were talking about what you were going to teach during your, oh, that's right. That's right. Your six hours. And you said it, it, it you'll teach whatever you feel so like teaching I, at the moment. I, I tend to do is I ask people, how many here would like to be more confident? Now, Notice what I did is I gave you permission to, to participate with the visual, right? Uh, the, uh, I, I try to show people what, the, what they can do as much as possible, you know? The, uh, and everybody wants to be more confident, you know? And so I'll explain how fear works, you know? And how the fear of rejection is so overpowering, why it's so overpowering. First, you got to recognize that you are, that it is not a character flaw when your knees start shaking. <laughs> you know, that, and, and it took me 20 years to fully accept the fact that it's okay to be terrified. What do yeah. you do in the moment in a courtroom when you are and you're 
you're the guy, you're Rex Paris, you're there to attempt to get justice for your client or your clients. What do you do when your knees are shaking and you feel that? I lower my heart rate. It's very, I mean, it's, it's so elementary to me now. If let's talk about what fear is. Fear is something that's going, uh, of something that will happen in the future. It, it's not happening now. I'm still breathing. You know, I, I don't have any holes in my torso. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's something that will happen in the future. So the first thing you do is you bring yourself to the present. How do you do that? Well, what do I see? Well, I got see a white coffee cup. It's actually, you know, a library color. It's empty. I can't see to the bottom. My assumption is it's empty. There's some marks of the coffee drip, drip marks on the side of it. It's as, as granular as I can make it because it, it shuts out anything that's happening in the future. Hmm. I'm in the present. You know, what am I feeling? Well, you know, the, the right side of my butt has more pressure on it than the left side, probably because my legs are crossed and I can feel the pressure on my, my uh, uh, left leg from the right leg. You know, what do I physically feel? as granular as I can, I can get it. And then it's, uh, what do I feel emotionally? Well, like right now, I'm always, I'm always a little anxious, a little nervous that I'm sounding like a nut job because I know to most people, this is, this is not something they're used to hearing. I'm going to help people get in touch with why, what you're saying to an outsider may seem so unusual, but it's been, I don't know if you've thought about this, but this whole thing that you're describing right now has been sort of played out. You know, they always say that, uh, um, what is it, that popular culture, you know, art imitates life, right? Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen the movie, The Legend of Bagger Vance? No. Watch that. Oh, I did too. I did too. He was the, that was a golfing thing, right? He's a caddy. Right, right. And... He's a caddy and he's helping Matt Damon, who's playing the, the hero of the South against Bobby Jones. Mm-hmm. And I forget uh, who the other, the other golfer was, but they're playing this, you know, this, this match. And Matt Damon was supposed to be this, um, you know, this great golfer back in the day, but he had all this baggage from what he was supposed to be and who he was and what he was supposed to be and what he wasn't and what he did and didn't do. And Bagger Vance helps him get to what he calls the, the, the field, which is in the crowds disappear and the whole sort of shortens up and he's no longer talking about, there's no noise. He's just in the moment. He says, you got to stop living in the past and be here. He, he hits the ball in the woods. He goes, you can pick the ball up if you want. And that's one way to do it. But the other is, you know, you can, need to you know that that who you were back then that's you're never going to be that person again all you have is who you are now it was great because he helped i mean it was as you're talking to me and i hope that people who are listening to this i'm thinking of that movie it it wasn't described this way because they wanted it to sort of wasn't described in a scientific way um but it was really getting this guy who had this baggage of the war and who he was supposed to be and who he wasn't anymore 
to shed all of that and be in the exact moment, feel the blades of grass, feel the leaves, feel the wind and clear his mind. You know, it's called see the field. It's fascinating that you're, you are describing that. And so you're not, you can't be describing unless all, unless whoever made that, that blockbuster movie and those actors who all played in it and it gets replayed unless they're nut jobs, you're not a nut job <laughs> because what you're describing is the very same thing. You know, understand what I'm saying here. I don't think I'm in the job. And I, I taught this enough that I know that, you know, few people in the room are going to be thinking I am. But if that's the feeling I'm having at the moment, I identify it. And it's never really left me, you know? Like, I, I hear all this stuff about who I'm supposed to be. That, you know, I'm still the busboy. You know, and, and who I am. I'm still the kid who couldn't walk through the cafeteria. There's still that part of me. And so I've, I've learned to just not listen to it. You know, you know, let me finish it and then let's go back to that because I think that's an important thing I learned along the way. But once I've identified, you know, got really into the present, then you breathe. But you have to breathe in a very specific way. It's you breathe in at a count of four, you release at a count of four, you, wait a minute, yeah, where am I? <laughs> yeah, breathe in, hold it for a count of four, release for a count of four, hold again for a count of four, it's the four box. And that was developed by the Navy SEALs because the Navy SEALs, it's impossible to shoot, you know, Osama bin Laden after you just crashed the helicopter, uh, unless you can bring that heart rate down. <laughs> <laughs> They're very cognizant of their heart rate because you can't be afraid with a slow heart rate. You know, the, the, it, it, our, our, the physicality, uh, there's a circularity to it. I think biathletes do that too, right? They, they are cross-country skiing and they have to get to a spot and they got to hit a certain number of shots and they need to immediately slow. Immediately get that heart rate down. That's why cross-country skiing and shooting is so hard, by the way. <laughs> you know? Yes. Both are hard. <laughs> Both right. are hard independent of the other. <laughs> the, uh, and, and so you do the, the four box breathing. And then as you feel that fear subside and the heart rate subside, I'm back. That's what I say. When I do my, my presentation, I play a thing with James Brown doing, I'm back, you know, uh, with a dance to it. Um, and, but I really do visualize. I'm back. Yeah. It's very important that my mood be very positive and important. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. What's your, what, what would you say is your proudest moment in the courtroom? I don't mean your case. What was the proudest moment you had in the courtroom? When I watched my son do an opening that was truly, truly compelling. <laughs> you know. Tell me about that. Well, it was actually the the uh, the mini opening, you know. But the case was was over when he sat down. I, and I forget the words he used, and, but he was there. He, you know, he 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 got it. He was in the zone. He was totally connected with it. You know, it was uh, the. Uh, when I, you know, one time Jason Fowler, he, he's one of our, our partners. 
I watched him. The first time I, I saw him do a cross-examination, I was going to fire him. Yeah, they can sometimes be an asshole. And, <laughs> and he froze, you know, and it, it, it was intolerable to me at the moment. And then my, you know, wife reminded me I was being an asshole. Everything was fine. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they, uh, but I watched him take down this, this life care planner. It was the most remarkable thing I'd ever seen. And it was, it was better than I, far better than I could have done. Mm. Uh, and it was, but I, the, the, the pride of knowing that I had a significant part in creating that ability, you know, it was truly remarkable. Uh, and, and I've had a lot of those moments watching associates and the kids and, and a lot of those moments. And, and those are the moments that count. What I do in the courtroom, it doesn't have nearly the significance. You know, just, just being in, in L.A. Superior Court, there's this really long hall. They, they have these long hallways, you know, poorly designed buildings, but, you know, they're old. And uh, just watching my sons walk down that hall, you know, it was, you know, it, it, it makes life meaningful to me. Amazing. Amazing. You must be so proud. Oh, uh, yeah. He, he teaches with you, right? Kale teaches with me. Uh, the, uh, and Alex, uh, who used to be my son-in-law, he teaches with me. <laughs> you know? Amazing. Yeah. So. What's your, have you had any, because I think one of the things that people are always curious about, um, do you use notes when you're questioning a witness? No, I don't. I use uh, mind maps. Uh, I can show you one if you want. Yeah, I would love to see that. We'll take a moment. So let's keep talking. As I look. Yeah, I'm, so what do you, we'll come back to that because I do want to, what do you think is the, the most important you know, we, important part of a trial. You've got the, the you know, we got Voidir obviously opening, um, you know, direct, cross-exam, closing, um, and everybody has an opinion about what they think is the most important. And despite the title of this podcast, um, I'm interested in the whole package, so. Well, the, mo the most important part is, is the verdict. <laughs> <laughs> well, What's the, I appreciate that, but what's the most important part? Okay. You got me there, but what's the most important phase of the, you know, the actual stuff you're doing? Uh, well, I, I think it has to be Boy Dyer. If you have Boy Dyer, some jurisdictions don't. Uh, the, um, let's see, I don't want to move this over to you. Rex, how do you get how do you get jurors to so many people these days have heard about tort reform and are afraid someone's getting a free ride or is getting, you know, or looking for the easy way out or looking for. And that's what the defendants are. Right. That's what they're sort of hanging their hat on, that uh, these people are. They still think that's effective. Huh? No, I don't. I, I'm asking <laughs> you whether or not I, I'm asking you in your opinion um, maybe your view is that things have changed so much that it, that it's no longer an issue. Uh, but I'm curious of your of your view about that. Well, I think it's an issue to some people, uh, obviously. It, but 
what what I've seen in myself too many times when I try to deal with those issues like that, what I'm really trying to do is change their mind about it, right? Yes. Rather than just trying to figure out who's the best juror to sit here. Okay. The, the last case I did, pre-COVID, uh, it, was, it was kind of fun actually because it was against Tesla. And- uh, It was the, against Tesla. Tesla, yeah. Wow. Uh, okay, taking the, out a giant there. It, it was a workplace injury, you know. The uh, what, how Tesla does business model is is they subcontract. All okay. the workers are are from another company, and you know, advantages to that. But one of the disadvantages is you can pierce workers' comp. You know, and that's what we were able to do. But uh, you know, the judge. Uh, was very clear with us about we better not violate his motions and limit. Uh, but his orders were a little less than clear. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like one of the orders was uh, we weren't allowed to use the uh, uh, what's David Ball's thing, uh, the reptile theory. Okay. Right? Well, I said, Judge, I, I never read that book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand I'm quoted, but I never read it. <laughs> <laughs> it he, he was unamused. Wasn't allowed to use the reptile theory. Okay. okay. Even me, though you hadn't read it and you were just doing your own thing. Don't say reptile. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <but> I, I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> anyway, so Kale does that mini opening. And his biggest sin was it was too compelling, uh, which I would have preferred he not have done, by the way, because what I'm looking for is jurors to get rid of. You know, instead we showed them which jurors to get rid of. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I get it. I get it. So basically, but anyways, there's a mini opening before Wadir, and then it, it teed up, it highlighted the jurors that, that were with you, right? Right, right. Uh, the uh, but the judge was offended about some. I, I, I didn't quite follow it. The other side didn't object. The next morning we get a call, be in court at eight o'clock. Kale had already left to go to this wedding. You know, his, his, I was going to pick the jury. And when I get there, this judge is just livid, livid, you know, uh, about it. Uh, and I think what he was really livid about is the case was already over. Yeah, <laughs> it was that good. Wow, fantastic! And, uh, but you know, at one point, you know, I, I stood up and I said, because he was saying it was done deliberately, and I said, Judge, this is my son you're talking about, and I know who he is, and he absolutely did not deliberately do anything, and for you to put that on the record is a violation of the judicial canons. You know, he is also an officer of the court, but more importantly, I would not do it to your child. Uh, you know, I'm expecting to go to jail any second now, <laughs> but the, it was- Are you as calm as you are right now? No. I'm saying that to him? A little, little more animated. Interesting. I mean, I really thought he was making a mistake. I didn't yeah. think it was malicious, but I didn't think he was fully cognizant of the impact of it. 
you know, trials today aren't what they used to be. Now they live forever. You know, used to be what happened in that courtroom really didn't matter. The only people who knew about it were the participants and if there was a court reporter, how it read, you know. Uh, but now with the internet, that's different. If, but anyway, uh, so he pulled back, but he said, you had better not violate one motion in limine during Boy Dyer, and you can have 30 minutes. Uh, so now I'm really on my best behavior. Is <laughs> <laughs> 30 minutes enough for you? Well, this is what, what happened was the next thing I know, I'm in it an hour. A juror said, Your Honor, I got a parking meter problem. The judge goes, okay, let's take a break and Mr. So-and-so can fix his parking lot. I mean, just put money in the parking meter. And when we get back, Mr. Paris will finish his boy dire. You know, I'm already an hour into it. Because I was so, so, I never left the rules. And the only thing I talked about were the damages because it was an admitted liability case, essentially. Uh, and I had, you know, I have all the, the damages that they're going to be asked to to consider on a on a board, where as I'm asking board dire jury, and I didn't ever veer from that. It was I want to talk to you about humiliation, you know, and then just have a conversation with them. Uh, it was the best boy dire I'd ever done. Hmm. It, I mean, I, the comments I got from other lawyers that had come to watch, I, I hadn't intended to do that boy dire. But because of the confines were so. When what it really is, it's an ability to have a conversation with somebody. It's an ability to listen to them. You know, if I'm talking more than 40 seconds, this is true in life. I'm talking too much. You know, a, a good conversation is, is 40 seconds. They will reveal themselves with that framework. You know, it, it, you, you just have to listen and delve a little deeper and you have to have some basic skills on how to get people to talk. You know, want to see Max, I've heard I've heard so many lawyers try to teach other lawyers and they encourage them to just be yourself. I don't you will never hear me say be yourself. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Well, you know, that that's really a, a big thing with the Spence method, but it's one I disagree with because the, that assumes there's this humongous inside our skull that is directing everything. You know, got a little man doing, you know, telling. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like a guy like at the, at the, at the, air, at the airport, like directing the plane like this. Right. right. Yeah. No, we don't have that. We, we live in columns. What, what it's the context of what we're doing at the moment. You know, right now I'm, I'm doing interview Rex. This is what you see when Rex does an interview, you know, it's, it's not what you see when I'm sitting in the kitchen table with my wife. You know, that doesn't mean that this is any less real in me than when I'm with her. It's a different context, it's all. What, to me, being, being real and genuine and sincere is what is expressing what you're feeling at the moment. You know, who I'm, 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 I'm trying to be genuine. I'm trying to be accurate. Uh, I'm trying not to put on a, a, a front, you know, and, and that's an effort. It takes cognitive uh, resources to do. The, uh, 
but that's what it means. And it mostly means being aware of how I'm feeling. You know, so you're going to send me an example of a mind map. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to love it. All right. So, uh, you know, the case against the trial lawyers college, you know, Jerry Spence versus them and then versus them. I had, to, I had to go through all the minutes. I have to know what the minutes have to say. Right? And so here, the January 21st uh, <laughs> meeting, right? Yes. Those, those are the key points for that meeting. So if I'm at being in, in they're going to depose me in a month. And I'm taking this with me, you know, the mind maps with me. And I'll have the minutes there. I'm not going to ask answer a question about what happened in 2014. And you're you're and I just pointed to the thing that you're sort of you brought out here, right? This is what you're talking about here. Like these are right. So these this are is how you identified these. These are like essentially notes, but what they really are is just keywords about what happened on that day in that meeting that I think are important. And so when you ask me something, I'll be able to find it, you know much easier to find it on something like this. It also, what by the time I get this done before the deposition, I'll have pictures in there, a lot of pictures, you know, because your, your, your brain works with visual, visuals, not words. Uh, and the whole idea is to, to remember what you're doing here. Like I'll do this with a witness. These are, I'll have all the points I want from the witness. And if I'm going to cross-examine them with a deposition, I'll have page and line up there also. Yeah. And then that gives me the freedom. I mean, I don't care where he takes me. I'll go with him because I know I can come back. You know, I, I can see it all very quickly, especially if there's pictures of it. Uh, and, you know, Brian Panish and I, Brian Panish, incredible lawyer, remarkable. He couldn't get over this, you know, because... It, it, it's so much more efficient and so much more the way we think. It gives me the, the flexibility. If, if I have it all out linearly on a, you know, on an outline form, I'm stuck to it. Yeah, you know, I, I had, a, I had a, uh, a California Voter Rights Act action against Santa Monica. And it was Gibson Dunn, one of America's largest law firms, senior partners, people who argue in front of the Supreme Court. But they all did it the same way. You know, they took the depots, they deconstructed them, it was all linear. And as soon as I started dancing and the judge over, uh, sustained something, they were, they were lost. It took them about probably three to four minutes to get back on track. That doesn't happen to us, you know? All right, I don't know what, it, it's all in front of me. I know how to go there. Uh, but you got to read the book, um, you know. So, so this is well. I, I mean, I certainly wouldn't. I mean, I'm going to give a little bit of a caution to people at home. Like, don't try this at home unless you know what you're doing, right? But um, this, the way you have this laid out, um, I mean, it's so incredibly more. You, obviously, if it, all of this means something to you, but it's so much different than just having like a notes. People flip their notes. F. Lee Bailey was like he hated seeing lawyers stand there and look at their notes because you just lost contact with the with the witness. 
Yeah, what I do is I go up to every witness with one of these, you know. And sometimes, you know, if I brought in the case really late, you know, one of my one of my associates or or my sons will prepare the mind map, and I can just do it off the mind map. You know, I don't recommend that, but that has happened. Uh, you're, and also by the time you've mind mapped it out, you know, rarely do I look at them. I mean, sometimes I have to, but rarely. And you know, it's it's kind of fun in the courtroom, like in, in, in that particular case. I go, oh, so what? What one thing happened in that case? There was, there was. I show up in the morning. I don't know that I'm on, you know, because the I wasn't supposed to be on. The witness wasn't supposed to be there that day, and the defense attorneys, I you know, I think they were messing with me actually. Uh, snuck them in. Well, we sent you an email last night. Well, last night I was sleeping. <laughs> and so and they were just so controlled with themselves. They were going to pull, get away with this. You know, because we had a rule. You had to tell us the, by five o'clock today. So uh, I sit down and I grab a notebook and, you know, I start the mind map. You know, to do it uh, of what I'm going to ask this witness, right? It took me all of about 10 minutes, tops, maybe five, you know? I said, okay, this is what I'm going to cross-examine them on. You want to watch, you want to read it? <laughs> Amazing. So yeah. someone wanted you know they to do, learn, but they say no. <laughs> if I wanted to learn how to begin to understand how to mind map to, um, to improve my, you know, lawyering, or someone wanted to do that who's listening, how would they, where should they start? What are some good resources? Well, you know, go on to Amazon, pull one of uh, Buzan's books on mind mapping. They're Buzan, short. Buzan, Buzan, yeah. B-U-Z-O-N or? B-U-Z-A-N, I think. Okay. Uh, you know, the idea is, you know, our brain is just a jumble of stuff that you reconfigure every time you pull back a memory, you know? And the idea is don't try to do it in a linear fashion. That is not how we're designed. We're, we're much more designed like this. And, uh, but it, it gives me the ability to focus on that witness because I'm really not thinking about what my next question is. I don't need to. When I do the void dire, I'm really not thinking about my next question. I'm listening. I'm looking for a key word that I can, that I can you know, further expand. But if I had linear notes, I couldn't do that. You know, I mean, it's too hard. Everything, when I'm in trial, the office, I mean, the, the team that goes in with me, a primary consideration is how to lower my cognitive load. You know, because, you know, there's a book out there called Scarcity that talks about our bandwidth. And, you know, I mean, this is the example I use just to piss people off and, you know, I like to get a reaction. It's, did you know that poor people are dumber than you and me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're as uncomfortable as you are right now. But it's true. And the reason I know that is because in the research, if you restore people or bring people up to a middle-class income, their IQ goes up 10 to 15 points. Yeah, you know, so 
that's the reversal and you're okay with me now. <laughs> you know, I'm really not a pig. <laughs> the, uh, but that is true research. And it's because when my mother was raising the four of us, every day she had to worry about, did she pay the water bill or did she get Rex's gym clothes so he didn't have to run laps? If he pays the water bill, are they gonna shut off the electricity? The, the enormity of the pressures, you know? Middle-class people that, that commute, right? They got to get back by a certain time to pick the kids up from daycare. They, you know, there, there's these, these cognitive load, just the act of driving. Do you know how many decisions you make every minute? You know, it's hundreds, you know, raking, doing all this. Those are all things that are taking cognitive energy. By the time you get to the courtroom, I've already beat you because I don't drive. Somebody else does. I don't decide what to have for breakfast. Somebody else does. The night before, I lay my clothes out so I don't have to make a decision in the morning. We preserve that bandwidth with all that we are. There, you know, there's always a team with me. And one of the people on that team, they go get, they know to go get me coffee with before the break comes, so I don't even have to ask for it. You know. Not because I'm so cool or because I'm so arrogant or it's because we are all striving for one thing and that's the verdict. And the more cognitive load that is, I, that I'm relieved of, a nap during the day is, is we really work at being able to do that. We're not, we're rarely successful because of the way the courthouse is, how far it is from us. The, the, uh, you know, sleeping is is critically important to us. And we have all kinds of different techniques to be able to get to sleep the, the, during a trial. You know, the uh, it's really an unfair contest because of those little techniques, you know. But you see how granular it becomes? I do. You know, and what we eat you know, is, is extremely important during the trial. We don't eat carbs, you know, it's protein at lunch, you know, anything that's gonna make, make me tired, that can't be on the menu, you know. The, uh, you know, the uh, lawyers love to fight with each other during the case, you know, they just love to mess with each other. Uh, we've learned not to do that because what, if I make him angry, he's going to be more hypervigilant. He's gonna be better, not less, not worse. I used to think it was the, the other way around. It, but at the same time, it does take cognitive load. One of the other lawyers will step between him and me and I'll walk away. You know, I mean, we, we choreograph everything down to that. Don't, don't waste your cognitive energy. You're gonna need it. Because when you're when you're talking to that juror, you have to be totally focused on that juror, and you have to have the energy to do that. Brilliant. Yeah. I know it's you say it, and I say brilliant, and I think you're going to say, but it's elemental, and it is. But I don't think a lot not, of people. It's not I don't, elementary. It's elemental. I didn't. I said elemental, not not, right. not elementary. It's elemental. Right. So right. when I say brilliant, I know you're thinking, but it's elemental. But we don't. 
ever think about it on that 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 granular level as you put it when you when you you know as the mayor of the city what i've learned is i don't want to hear what a big what a great leader i am the moment they start telling me that crap they want me to slow down <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah they're, they're trying to satisfy my ego so i won't have another idea tomorrow morning now they're not thinking that i understand i yeah. get it I don't want to. I don't want to have people blowing smoke up my ass because it makes me less. It doesn't make me more, you know. And 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 I'm totally comfortable with the idea that you're smarter than I am. Uh, you know, I I had brain surgery in law school where they removed, they didn't actually remove it, it atrophied. But there's a piece of my brain missing. You know, I used to be really smart, but you know. I, I don't need to hear how smart I am. What I probably do more than most any, most other people is I, I work harder, meaning I study in the morning. My, my wife, you know, I'm always pissed off because the associates aren't reading enough books, you know? And she goes, Rex, they got a job. <laughs> you know, she, she has lifted the, all of the management of the office up from me and now her and other people do it. I, I don't even know which bank I go to. You know, I don't, I don't, the decisions most people have to make, we don't allow me to make, you know, because my only role is to get better at persuading people. You know? I get yeah. it, it's fantastic. Rex, what lies ahead for you and your firm? So let me ask, um, I know you're going to be doing something with the, the at the Thunderhead Ranch, the Spence Method at Thunderhead Ranch this summer, right? I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, you, you also you know, got there. I've taught there for 25 years now, uh, but now it'll be my. It, it, this program is going to be so much better, you know, because what happens? What'll always happen is you you have people that actually produce things that make make things happen that you know go to court go into trial get ha, have an impact on the world you know i don't i don't i think that you know the size of our verdicts is a poor way to measure but it's about the only way to measure you know the how, the quality of the lawyer uh, but it is a very poor way to measure but you will always then have people that act like they are that person, but are afraid to be that person or won't do the work to be that person. And that's what happened with the trial lawyers college. You know, you, you looked up one day and the people who were actually trying cases no longer came and talked. You know, uh, it, it had been infiltrated, <laughs> infiltrated by the posers in many respects. And, and the people that are doing that don't know that. I mean, because they never grew comfortable with discussing that fear. I'm, I'm still terrified to go into court. I go anyway, you know? Uh, and and it, it's had an incredible effect on the firm. You know, the other day, one of the attorneys settled a case for $23 million. Hmm. It was a $100,000 insurance policy. And they paid him $23 million. And we were all pissed off <laughs> because he settled the case. <laughs> Amazing. You know, it, it, uh, and, and we just had a, you know, that was about six months ago. And, and yesterday at lunch, we were talking about it is 
you know, it's because we measure by the year. You know, we measure the income of the all the attorneys by the year. And he didn't want to have a bad year. You know, and so he had a great year. But we knew that the potential of that case could have been significantly higher. Uh, the now other firms hear that and think I'm nuts, you know, because you know, they gave you $23 million on a hundred policy. <laughs> you should be celebrating. Uh, and, and there is value to that way of looking at it. But, you know, it's different with us. So after the Spence method at Thunderhead Ranch, yeah. you've got Trial Lawyers University in Las Vegas. I'm sure you've got some other stuff you're doing in between there. You know, I, I, it's gotten to the point now that I learned 48 hours before. Uh, but, you know, I've got this, this, this uh, catalog of, of PowerPoint and keynote slides. You know, probably got a thousand of them. You know, I can, put them, I can put them together pretty quickly. And, you know, the goal is to, to deal with whatever the new stuff I'm learning. Like right now, I'm really, wor I'm really working on, on simplification of, of what that really means. What does it mean to simplify? Now, the concept goes back to Fenneman, you know, he's one of the world's greatest scientists, was the one who said, yeah, but be able to, be able to explain it to a 10-year-old. To and wherever he, that 10-year-old doesn't understand, go back and do it again till they do, right? And that's for science. You know, are we doing, you know, and I've always kind of known that. I think Jerry taught, taught us that at the RAND. I would always, always do the openings with the kids. You know, when they were eight, nine, and ten, see if they got it. Yeah. So, if because um, you have so much to offer, Rex, if if people who are listening to the podcast wanted to find out more about you, your son, your firm, where would they go? Where would they look? You know, we we give everything we have. You know, we we don't. We don't have any secrets, and and you know that that was hours of debate for us to make that decision. Uh, my wife used to say, "Quit teaching this stuff." You know, you're teaching your competitors. Quit teaching this stuff. Yeah. And so I asked Paul Levera about it. You know, 15, 20 years ago, and well, because he teaches it all the time, and he said, "Rex, I've taught thousands of lawyers." And one of the things he taught about was neuro-linguistic programming. He says, you're the only one that went and got certified. <laughs> the, Get it. The, and so if there's a concern like that out there, it doesn't matter anyway. Oh, no. I just want people to be able to, if they wanted to find you, is the, oh, their, yeah, your no. website, oh, is there a... I lost my train of thought. Sorry. The, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, Rex, R-Rex, R-R-E-X, at Paris, P-A-R-R-I-S dot com. Uh, if you want, send me an email, tell me what you want to know, or you want a reading list, or, you know, stuff like that, I'll be, be happy to do it. And how about your law firm, if they wanted to reach out to your law firm or learn more about your law firm? It's uh, Paris, Paris.com. Paris.com? Yeah, P-A-R-R-I-S, Paris.com. Okay. Um, 
And you didn't tell me about my most interesting thing, the thing that I'm really dedicated to. Okay. What are you really dedicated to? What's your most interesting thing? A couple of years ago, my wife and I gave the startup funding for a, a biotech company out of USA. And I think we have the answer to autoimmune diseases. Yeah. Wow. That's hard. It's, it's the most exciting stuff going on in medicine now. And I'm the president of Carthronics, C-A-R-T-H-R-O-N-I-X. Uh, if anybody has osteoarthritis, we will be in human trials within six months. Uh, and it, it, at least in dogs, it no longer exists. We know that for a fact, that we can stop osteoarthritis in large animals. Uh, the, the science is robust. The, uh, and I guess one of the reasons I'm bringing that out is the great thing about being a lawyer, it requires you to become knowledgeable about whatever your client is doing. And that gives you a, a wealth of options and, and such a broad base of knowledge. You know, because people will ask, what is a mayor and a lawyer doing as president of a biotech? Had I not been the lawyer, couldn't have happened. Unbelievable. And, and I think I'm a pretty effective mayor for that same reason. You know, we were the first net zero city in the world. We're now uh, next week signing a deal with Japan. We will be the first hydrogen powered city in the country. Naomi will be the first one in Japan. I think they're already there. Uh, I mean, we're- You're making a difference. Yeah, and you can do that because of all the stuff you learn as being a lawyer. And if you don't limit yourself, you know, I, I rarely say no to something. It, uh, now they have people saying no for me, but it, uh, you know, like I love to teach. I love to, you know, life. You know, I, I tell my kids that, you know, if they wake up one morning and I didn't, I had the best life. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> It's incredible. I tell you, I, um, I really am. Uh, I didn't know what to expect from this conversation today. And because um, I didn't, I didn't, you and I had never met. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say that I'm impressed. But I'm going to share something with you that is two things that you said that are really hit home for me. And they really are unrelated to your accomplishments in the courtroom and the things that you've done. One is the clear pride that is evident in your description of watching your son not just do something well, but just even begin to do it, which was your description of walking down the hallway in the courthouse and saying, that's my boy. Um, I know what that's like. That's incredible. And I felt that as a, as a father, I could feel the pride. Um, and the second was when you just shared with me the story about you saying that, you, you don't, don't worry about me if I don't wake up because I had a wonderful life. Um, my, um, that resonated with me in a, in a way that you couldn't have possibly known, but I hope you'll let me share it with you. Mm -hmm. I, my grandmother, uh, a blessed memory, she was, a uh, uh, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors and she had everything in Vienna, Austria, everything. 
And then of course the Nazis came and her father, my great grandfather of, after whom I'm named was able to um, um, get her to the United States. And she went from everything to nothing. And she ended up marrying my grandfather. They were married for, I think, 79 years or something like that. And I remember sleeping on a really awful pull-out bed in their, you know, um, in a condo they rented in Florida for a couple of weeks. And I had one of those pull-out beds, you know, that has like the really thin mattress and the, the metal bar in the middle. So it's just, yeah. <laughs> just right against my back. I mean, I just couldn't find a way to get comfortable, but I didn't dare not stay there because it was so important for them that I was there right after everything they went through my grandmother turned to my grandfather one night I could hear them in the bedroom just you know down the you know it was a small little condo apartment and I could hear her say Norbert we've lived a wonderful life after everything she had been through she still felt that her life was wonderful because she was with her family so uh, as you described what your morning would be like, or you know, what the night before would be like if you didn't wake up in the morning, that really resonated with me. And, sure. um, and I, did not, I did not know that we would get there or that we even would have, that there would be that, that you would share that and that it would impact me in that way, but it, but it has, and I appreciate it. So. Thank you for sharing that with us. Rex, I can't tell you how pleased I am that um, two of my, you know, colleagues and you know, Norm Pattis and uh, Dan Ambrose both encouraged me to reach out to you and to to have this conversation. Have you had um, Norm on? What's that? Have you had Norm on? I had Norm on. Yes. Norm is is I think He's one of awesome the best people I've ever met. Great. He was awesome. We had him out at the house for about five days. Uh, a month ago and it, it, was, it was glorious he's awesome and he's he immediately after we finished the interview uh he's like you need to um he need to to speak with uh with rex and so i was like absolutely and then of course um dan with you know uh he wanted me to speak to you as well um and i can just say i'm so glad that both of both of them encouraged me to to do that and i and that you're so gracious with your time. I've taken up so much of it this morning. So, you know, Norm is responsible for, for wonderful things in my life because 20 years ago, I'm on the phone with him and I'm saying, you know, I'd really like to be able to teach. Right? I hadn't taught anywhere yet, you know, teach lawyers, right? And he goes, well, what have you done that's worth teaching? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I mean, talk about brutal honesty. Uh, it's great, but it you know it, it made me confront that, and that that was one of those things that was pivotal in making me confront my terror of that courtroom and doing it anyway. So, no. I, I can't thank you enough for for taking part, Rex. You're uh, everything that you're cracked up to be. So, so Ernie Harwell, who was the Detroit Tigers uh, a broadcaster for years before he passed, he used to always say about a player, he would say, he is as advertised. And so I can say that about you sincerely. You are as advertised. So Rex, thank you for appearing on Killer Cross-Examination. It was really an honor. And I mean that, an honor. Anytime. I, I enjoyed the morning. Thank you.